Chapter 5 It was at the Royal Engineers Depot in Ismailia that I first met Dick Turpin. At that time, I spent the evenings in the mess playing poker with another ex-desert officer. We were trying to part the newly arrived officers from the two months back pay they would receive on arrival in Egypt. We were both pretty good at it, and at one time I was winning more at poker than I was paid by the army. Not that that was very much. Dick Turpin was a vicar's son. He was a blue-eyed, fair-haired boy, with a face that didn't appear to need a shave, and my friend and I thought he was a lamb for the shearing. We couldn't have been more wrong. Dick took us both to the cleaners. I was to meet Dick, his real name was James, twice more before the war was over, and we became very close friends. He won the MC in Holland and lost a leg there. Years later, whenever he stayed with us at our house in Bramall, my daughters were fascinated by the wooden leg, which he took off at night. In fact, my oldest daughter sometimes used to hide it. The leg was called Horace. While I was at the Royal Engineers Depot, I was posted as an instructor to the School of Military Engineering, which was a few miles down or up the canal from Ismailia. This gave me promotion to captain and a fairly cushy job in a very comfortable spot. Although I'd lost my horse, there was a rowing boat called a Gibraltar gig at the SME, and six of us used to take it for a row along the Suez Canal nearly every day. Looking back on it, I can't think of a more comfortable and safe place to be at that stage of the war, and you might imagine that I was completely happy there. Nothing could be further from the truth. I'd been separated from the woman I loved for two years and was quite desperately miserable about it. You might also wonder why I didn't write home more often. And the answer is that all our letters were censored. That meant you couldn't say where you were or what you were doing, which left little room for anything else to say except I love you, in one way or another. And knowing that someone else is going to read your letters rather inhibits one's style. While I was stuck in the canal zone, the 8th Army had advanced to Tunisia and was getting nearer to England via Italy perhaps or by boat direct to the UK, ready for the invasion of France. I was told that it was no use applying for a different posting. The SME was stuck in Egypt for the rest of the war and I was stuck with it. There was, however, a way out of this fix. They couldn't refuse a posting to a parachute unit and the Royal Engineers had a parachute squadron in Tunisia. That is why I became a parachutist. By that time, my leg wound had completely healed and my jaundice had done me no permanent harm. I was as fit as a flea with swimming, riding and rowing. The only snag was that I was short-sighted and couldn't pass the medical for that reason. Just as love is said to laugh at locksmiths, in my case it laughed at medical inspections. The medical officer had two sightboards and I memorised the top letter, the only one I could read without glasses, and the bottom line of both sightboards. That's how I became a parachutist. I did my initial training at a parachute school in Palestine, somewhere near Lake Tiberias, which is 2,000 feet below sea level. Just for fun, we were taken for a flight over the lake so that we could say that we had flown 1,000 feet below sea level, which most people simply don't believe. Incidentally, to get to Palestine, I literally hitched a lift from the American Air Force. I always found the American forces almost unbelievably helpful in any way they could be. In this case, I walked up to the American base in Ismailia. There were two sentries shooting craps at the gate when I approached, and to my surprise, instead of challenging me, they stood to attention and presented arms, which was pretty impressive. 
I got to see the duty officer and told him that I had to get to Palestine and could he help. Yes, he said. Sure thing. We have a plane going there this afternoon. So I was given a lift in one of their Dakotas. I'd only just started my training when I was told to go and join the parachute squadron in Tunisia. By the way, one of the conditions of my posting was that I had to agree to give up my rank of captain, as there was no vacancy for a captain in the unit. So now I was once again a lieutenant. My journey to Tunisia, by train to Alexandria and by boat to Sfax, was quite uneventful. The worst part of parachute training was the very hard physical endurance training we had to go through. After that, the jumps themselves were the easy part. We were also put through a very thorough course in the art of killing people, both with various weapons and bare-handed. I'm happy to say that I was never actually called upon to exercise these skills, but if times get hard, I could probably still hire myself as a fully qualified assassin. My first jump was exciting. We jumped out of a Dakota aircraft which has a side passenger door. Before you jump, a red light comes on and the dispatcher shouts, Action stations! You all stand up in a line to go through the open door, and when the green light comes on, you go. The big surprise is that the slipstream hits you really hard and knocks you sideways. After that, the next surprise is the total silence. There you are, hanging quite still in space, with only the distant sound of the disappearing aircraft. You have the impression of not moving. But when you look down, you see that the earth is rocking from side to side and coming up to meet you quite slowly. Then you realise that the earth is coming up rather quickly, and you hit it fairly hard. You tuck your elbows into your sides and try to roll as you were taught to do in training. I must have got it right because I hadn't broken anything and was not hurt any worse than from a fall when skiing. We had to do five jumps to qualify for the parachute badge and the red beret and all five were much the same except for the night jump, which I found a bit unnerving, but not really any more difficult. One heard stories of the Roman cradle. That was the name given for when the parachute failed to open. It did happen sometimes in those days, but I never saw one. One also heard stories of landing in bad spots like rocks or buildings. At that time, one couldn't steer the parachute like you can today, so you couldn't select your landing place. One unlucky jumper landed in a prickly pear hedge and had to have spines removed from his body, some of them in rather sensitive places. Another landed on the back of a cow, and I heard of one who actually landed in a well and had to be pulled out by his harness. Anyway, there we all were in North Africa, a fully trained parachute division, waiting for action. And waiting. And waiting. And waiting. We were told of a plan to drop us on Rome Airport combined with a sea landing at Anzio. This would effectively cut off the Germans in the south and was to coincide with the surrender of the Italian army. For some reason, this plan was never put into action and there was nothing useful for us to do, so we were sent on holiday to the Atlas Mountains, where we camped out and went climbing. It was on one of those climbs that I had my close encounter with a baboon. I was climbing up what is called a chimney, which means that you have your back on one side of a gap in the rock and your feet on the other side. I was leading about four other officers who were below me in the chimney when I discovered that there was a troop of about 20 baboons above me. Baboons have a nasty habit of throwing stones. Fortunately, their aim's not very good, and they always throw backhanded. Luckily, they didn't start throwing stones, but when I got to the top of the chimney, I came face to face with the leader of the troop. He was about the size of an Alsatian dog, with very dog-like teeth, 
and he was about three feet in front of my face, going woo, 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 and bouncing up and down. I'd never met a baboon socially before, so I just said woo, 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 back. And to my relief, this was the correct reply, because he backed off and gave me no further trouble. The country round the Atlas Mountains was really lovely, and the villages looked very French, not at all Arabic. We would have been happy to spend more time there, but one day we were told to go to Bessert, for embarkation to Italy, and so we were gathered together in bits and pieces and taken by road to Bessert, where we embarked on a Royal Navy cruiser and set off for Taranto. On the way to Taranto, we saw the Italian Navy ships steaming in the opposite direction. We'd been told that they were out of the war, but our Navy was taking no chances, and every Navy gun was pointed at the Italian fleet. If one of the Italian guns had turned towards us, our guns would have fired. Fortunately, the Italians kept their guns pointing fore and aft, and so nothing happened. I wasn't in the least afraid of the Italians firing at us, but I was really scared that our cruiser might start shooting, as we were all on the cruiser's deck, we'd have lost our eardrums. Our fleet sailed into Taranto Harbour completely unopposed. The Germans didn't even know we were there, and not a shot was fired. By very bad luck, one of our cruisers was blown up and sunk in the harbour by a magnetic mine. I saw the ship go down stern first, and could hear the cries of the men on board. Fortunately, most of them were picked up and saved. Not so fortunately, all the parachute division artillery was on that boat and was lost. It was very stupid to have put what little artillery we had all on the same ship. I don't know who was responsible for that. Someone had made arrangements for an Italian horse artillery troop to join us, and to everyone's surprise, they duly turned up. They were a cheerful bunch, and very proud of their guns, which they galloped about rather like the Royal Horse Artillery, doing their performance at Earl's Court. I don't think they ever had occasion to fire their guns, and I don't think there was ever a target for them to shoot at, as I will explain later. The first engineering job we were called upon to do was to blow up a fairly large stone bridge over a river near Taranto. Now, steel bridges are quite easy to blow up, and steel suspension bridges are even easier. You just have to cut the elastic, and their knickers fall down, so to speak. But stone bridges need a lot of explosives, which we didn't have. Being parachutists, we had no transport, and everything we had was carried on our backs. Someone found a German minefield near the bridge, so we dug up the mines and took out the explosives. It took us a whole day to do this job, and while we were doing it, a German truck drove up with some lucky soldiers on board who were driving into Taranto for a night out on the town. They were very surprised to find out that the British had landed. When we'd finished preparing the bridge for demolition and were waiting for the order to blow it up, a message came from Monty, who'd just been put in charge of operations, to say that he needed the bridge to be left intact as he wanted to bring his troops across it. So we spent the next day unpreparing the bridge for demolition. This bridge nonsense was to have quite serious long-term effects that we knew nothing about at the time. While we'd been in North Africa, we'd taken anti-malaria tablets every day, even though there's very little malaria in North Africa. But what the medical services didn't know was that malaria was very common in that part of Italy at that time, and no precautions were taken. We were plagued by mosquitoes while we were working on the bridge, and many of us, myself included, caught malaria, which is a long-term problem, and in many cases revisited us during the Normandy campaign. I've suffered from bouts of malaria ever since. 
The reason for sending us to Taranto was that it was hoped that the Germans would divert some of their troops from the Allied landings on the west coast, where things were getting rather sticky. If that really was the plan, it didn't work. The Germans took no notice of us whatsoever. It was a bit insulting in a way. First of all, a parachute unit having to go in by boat, and then an enemy who didn't bother to fight. By an odd coincidence, the only German forces in the southeast of Italy were the German 1st Parachute Division. So there was the makings of a first-class ding-dong battle between so-called elite troops. It didn't happen. The German 1st Parachute Division had been ordered to draw back and hold a line somewhere further north. The result was that we marched into village after village, only to learn that the Germans had marched out the day before. We never met. As I've said, we had no transport and had to carry everything on our backs. However, some clever chap got hold of a dozen or so pack mules that had been used by the Italian army. My men were nearly all city-bred and had no experience of horses or mules, so the men and the mules took an immediate dislike to one another. The strange thing is that after only a few days they became the best of friends and it was not uncommon on a cold night, when we were sleeping out in the open, to find men snuggled up against the mules for warmth. At one time we were billeted in a farm at a village called Giola del Col. I'd been allocated a splendid riding mule who'd put up a terrific fight against being saddled and bridled, but once that was done he was as gentle as a lamb, and I spent many happy hours riding him. We had a man in our troop who had one of the ugliest faces I've ever seen, except perhaps on the gargoyles of Notre Dame in Paris. He was a Glaswegian with an almost unintelligible accent, but apart from all that, he was a very good and useful man to have in the troop. One day this man bet me a bar of chocolate that he could saddle and bridle my mule single-handed. It seemed like an easy bet, so I accepted. To my surprise, he did the trick with no trouble at all. He discovered that the mule would do anything for a handful of sugared almonds. I later discovered why he wanted the chocolate. The farmer's daughter would do anything for a bar of chocolate. I have one more mule story which illustrates just how tough these splendid animals can be. One day a farmer came to us in great distress to say that his mule had fallen down a well. Could we help? As we really had nothing useful to do, we were glad of the chance to do something. What had happened was that the mule was pulling a plough when the ground collapsed under him and he fell into an underground aqueduct, probably built hundreds of years ago by the Romans. The first job was to lower a man down the hole to fasten a rope to the plough and put it out of the way. While this was being done, I managed to use some of the skills I'd learned at the School of Military Engineering and rigged up a simple crane using some telegraph poles that we'd found and some ropes and blocks that were part of our equipment. We managed to put two rope slings under the belly of the mule and started to haul him up. This upset the poor beast so much that in his struggle he got the ropes round his neck so that we had to lower him pretty quickly before he choked to death. At this point, I felt that I'd lose face with my men if we failed to rescue the mule, so rather reluctantly, I stripped off and was lowered down myself. I can still remember that the water was bloody cold. I fixed a rope round each of his four legs. It would be very uncomfortable for the mule, but he wouldn't be able to kick them off. I then gave the order to haul us both up together. The mule was pretty quiet by now and gave no trouble so that he was hauled up quite easily. It must have been a rather unusual sight for the natives of Joya del Col, who by this time had turned up en masse to see what was going on. There was I, sitting stark naked on the back of a very wet mule, hanging in the air from a rope. In the words of one of my favourite quotes from Josephine Baker, 
I wasn't really naked. I simply didn't have any clothes on. The next morning, the mule was back at work ploughing the field. My memory of the Italian campaign is of marching mile after mile over very hilly country. Fortunately by now with mules to carry most of our equipment and of sleeping on the ground in the open, night after night. We didn't carry either tents or camp beds, and the ground was often stony and always very cold. One morning I woke up to find that my trousers were frozen to the ground, and I had a terrible pain in my right hip. That day we marched another twenty miles or more, and every step was agony. Fortunately, that night someone produced some very good Chianti, and I got myself seriously drunk, which completely cured the pain. I wonder now if that night was the cause of the arthritis that I got 50 years later. It certainly confirmed my belief in the therapeutic value of red wine. The poor mules all caught a cold. They were coughing and wheezing and disgusting snot was hanging out of their noses. Unfortunately, we didn't have a vet with us, but there was probably not much a vet could have done. As with humans, there's really no cure for a cold, and it simply had to take its course about four or five days of misery. My daughter Angie remarked when she started reading these memoirs that I was always writing about food. This is true, I'm afraid. Food, or the lack of it, was very much in people's mind during the war years, and those of us who lived through it still find it difficult to waste food. So here's another little comment on the subject. When we were in Joya del Col, I noticed that the field behind the farm was covered with mushrooms, so I started gathering them. The farmer's wife and his family became very agitated and told us they were poisonous. They watched in horror when we sat down to eat a feast of them and kept crossing themselves and muttering and shaking their heads slowly. The next morning, when they found to their surprise that we were all alive and well, they rushed out into the field and started gathering mushrooms for themselves. I have no doubt they would eat all kinds of fungus that the English would call toadstools, but for some reason had not found out that what we call mushrooms are edible. Before I leave the Italian part of my story, I'd like to tell you of a little adventure that happened to a friend of mine called Peter, I can't remember his surname, who was sent on a special mission to occupy the radio station in Bari with a small party of four or five men. At that time we hadn't taken Bari, but the Germans were very thin on the ground and he didn't have any trouble. The job he had to do was to hold the radio station for some Italian bigwig, I think it was Count Sforza to broadcast to the Italian people that Italy was no longer fighting the British and American troops. The broadcast was made, and Peter decided to spend that night in the best hotel in Bari, the Hotel Imperiale, where he requisitioned the bridal suite. Peter was a tall, fair-haired, very English-looking officer, with the good looks that Italian ladies often fall for. Peter had the good fortune to be introduced to a charming Italian lady in the bar of the hotel, and evidently she liked the idea of sharing the bridal suite with him. Apparently, everything went according to plan until the next morning, when the manager came up to his room in great agitation to say that the Germans had arrived. Peter strolled onto the balcony in front of his room and saw two German armoured cars in front of the hotel, so he ordered the manager to send up breakfast for two and went back to bed. Well, the Italians had been told to offer their services to the British, and Peter liked his home comforts. Rescuing a mule from a well and introducing the natives to mushrooms are the only two useful things I did during my Italian campaign, apart, perhaps, from making one Glaswegian and one chocoholic Italian girl very happy. I never saw a German soldier, 
Apart from the little party that drove into us on the way to a night out in Taranto, I never fired a shot or heard a shot fired. We didn't blow anything up, or build any bridges, or clear any minefields. So I don't know whether to call this chapter Much Ado About Nothing, or perhaps A Comedy of Errors. However, my original objective in becoming a parachutist was achieved, because in December, the whole parachute division was shipped back to England.